Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever had uh, the opportunity to uh, travel to see any kind of Greco-Roman ruins, maybe in Athens or Ephesus, places like that. I've never been to those places, but there was one time I was able to go to Israel, and in northern Israel, there's a town called Beth Shan, or Beth Shan, and, and that town uh, is not your typical Israelite uh, or you know ancient Israel kind of uh, with those types of ruins, but it's from that Greco-Roman uh, kind of period. And there in that town, as you're walking around, you know, you'll notice uh, pavement and roads, and uh, they'll point out different structures to you and tell you, you know, over here there was the bathhouse, and here were uh, maybe a place where people would uh, buy and sell, and, you know, different things like that. But one thing that you'll notice are these pillars. You know, as you're walking through, there'll be rocks that are, you know, up to your knees or up to your waist or maybe as tall as you, but so often there are these pillars that have now for a couple thousand years stood the test of time. They're, they're high, sometimes 30, 40, 50, 60 feet in height. And the idea of those pillars, of course, was that together they would hold up the entire structure. But not only would they hold up the entire structure, they would tie the structure together to the foundation. This young man in this passage that we just read in verse 18, when he gives announcement to Saul that he's heard of David, he talks of David's foundation last. He says, and the Lord is with him. That is David's foundation. God is with him. At this point in our story, God is already David's and David is already God's. They belong to each other. The Lord is David's foundation. But there are pillars in David's life that tie this man into the Lord. And that's what we are going to look at this morning as this young man gave a report of who David was and who David is. And before we do that, we need to think about the scene. The scene is in the courts of King Saul. In fact, in verse 14, as we read it there, there was a statement that might have caught you a little bit by surprise. Two of them, actually, if you break them down. The first one being that the Spirit of the Lord, it says there in verse 14, departed from Saul. It's a little astounding at first glance. And then the second phrase, and a harmful spirit from the Lord was given to Saul to torment him. All right, so that brings up a couple of questions that I think any thinking believer might be tempted to ask. You know, the first question that we might ask is Did Saul at this point lose his salvation? I mean, the reason that we had asked that question is because in the New Testament era, we understand that when we become believers, God gives to us his Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit is given to believers as a deposit, as a down payment, as a guarantee of our future inheritance in Christ, in God, from our Father in heaven. So, you know, imagine yourself going to the car lot or something like that to buy a new car. And you go there and you say, I want this car. Uh, you know, they say it'll be ready in five days. You say, no, but I want this car. Uh, they say, no, but it's not going to be ready for five days. Prove it to us that you want to buy it. It's going to take a down payment. We're going to need a deposit. You know, you, if you give us $4,000, then we will reserve this car for you, trusting that 
you intend to pay the full price. That's what the Holy Spirit is like inside of you and me. God the Father has said of his people, I am going to, because of your faith, I'm going to deposit into you my spirit. And as my spirit has regenerated you, caused you to be born again, and as now you are living in him, this is my guarantee that I'm coming for you. I've, I've purchased you, you are mine, and the full inheritance will be yours. So it's a little shocking to us to read that the Holy Spirit departed from Saul. So that's why we might ask the question, did Saul at this point lose his salvation? What we have to remember is that Saul was living in a different era of God's redemptive program than you or I are living in. He was not living in the church age. He was not living on the or in the aftermath of the cross of Christ. He was living before that, when God was dealing more directly with the people of Israel. And at that point, in God's redemptive plan, the Holy Spirit was not coming to live inside of believers in a permanent kind of way. In fact, John talked about this in his gospel. He said one day that Jesus was declaring that if you believed in him, then out of your heart would flow rivers of living water. How good does that sound? Even if you don't know what it means, you're like, man, that sounds good. Rivers of living water coming out of my life. And then John gives this little editorial note in John chapter 7. He says, this he spoke of the Holy Spirit whom he had not yet given because he was not yet glorified. What that means is that there was something about the resurrection and then the subsequent ascension of Jesus that enabled God to deposit the Holy Spirit to live inside of people. And before Jesus went to the cross, before he died, before he rose from the grave, and before he ascended, the Holy Spirit could not actually permanently reside inside of us. Jesus had to be the first fruits, if you will, of that kind of life. And so the Holy Spirit was not given in that kind of way until Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. What Saul had going on at this time in his life was the Holy Spirit upon him for the work of being the king of Israel. That's how God would do it for the prophets and for the priests and for the kings of Israel is that he would aid them by placing the Spirit upon them. But because Saul had because of his desire to build his own kingdom rather than God's kingdom and his resistance against the Lord, because Saul had done that, God was now saying, I'm lifting my anointing from your life. All right, I've been helping you up to this point 20 years in, but now I'm going to begin to remove my spirit from you in helping you to be the king of Israel. Now, the second part of the phrase is probably the part that's a little even more discern, uh, distressing or disconcerting for us. The part that says, and a harmful spirit from the Lord was given to torment him. We kind of read that and we go, no, no, that can't mean what it's, what it's saying. And, uh, you know, I, I get the privilege, you know, each week as I'm studying, I get the privilege of reading a lot of different people, a lot of different scholars, a lot of different teachers, a lot of different authors about what they think about these various texts of the Bible that we are going to get into. And every once in a while, there's a little passage that as you're reading through all these different opinions, it's just wild what people come up with to try to make it say something different than what it so clearly says. 
And there might be some other kind of thing that's happening here, but you know what I think is happening here? I think a harmful spirit from the Lord was sent to torment Saul. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's what happened because that's what it tells us. Now, the problem for us is that it's hard for us to imagine God doing such a thing to one of his people. But to me, I think it is beautiful that God did this. I think it's beautiful, firstly, because it shows us the ultimate providence and sovereignty of God on display. Here's how. He is flexing his muscle and showing that he is able to even use the devil and the dark realms of this world for his purposes. That's sovereignty. That's authority. That's power. But also, I think it's beautiful because for Saul, this was one of the most loving things that God could have done for this man. You see, I know that God loves Saul. I know that God had a plan for Saul's life. I know that at this point, God has already moved on from Saul in the sense that Saul's family will not forever be seated upon the throne. That's true. God has already selected David. He has deselected Saul, if you will. But that doesn't mean that Saul couldn't have ended well. Saul could have had a revival in his heart. He could have confessed and repented of his sin. He could have softened before the Lord. And there could have been a beautiful transition from Saul's leadership to David's leadership if Saul would have simply submitted to the living God. And I think that the Lord was using this distressing spirit to help create the environment that would cause Saul to run to the living God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, we have a passage that helps us with this same concept. You see there, the church in Corinth had a particular individual in the church that was living in a very blatant sin. Uh, It was so blatant that everybody in the the church knew about it, and it was something that he was not repenting over. In fact, he was announcing, this is God's grace. God's grace allows me to live in this, you know, sin and in this ugliness. And Saul, or excuse me, Paul, the apostle, when he heard about it from many miles away, he wrote to the Corinthian church and he said, what you need to do in front of everyone, because this man's sin is known by everyone, you need to dismiss this man from the body. And then let me read to you exactly what he said. He said in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, Paul wasn't thinking, embarrass him. That's the goal. Paul wasn't thinking, dismiss him forever. That's the goal. No, what Paul was thinking was, this man needs a little time outside of the protection of God's family and of God's Spirit so that he can feel what it's like to go it alone. And as he does, my hope and prayer is that his flesh will be destroyed, but his spirit will be saved. I'm hoping and praying that this man goes through the revival that God desires for his heart and life. And I think that King Saul was going through the same thing. God had a beautiful plan for Saul's life if he would simply submit to it. All right, so that answers, or hopefully that helps you with a couple of those questions that might immediately come up from the text. 
So Saul there, he's kind of going a little crazy. He's got this tormenting spirit. And his servants, you know, for them, you got to feel for the servants of Saul. I mean, as you read through the life of Saul, one thing you discover is that his jealousy and his madness made it hard for all the people in his life. You think you got a rough job with a tough boss? Try going to work for King Saul with this tormenting spirit, you know, coming upon him. So they, you know, kind of get together and they're like, man, we got to do something about this. So they come up with an idea. We read about it there in verse 15 through verse 17. And their big idea is that they say, hey, Saul, give us permission to go find a man who can play the harp or the lyre. And whenever this tormenting spirit comes upon you, we'll call for this man and he'll play music. And that music will soothe you. That music will calm you down. How many of you have ever had music kind of calm you down a little bit, bring some kind of measure of just calmness into your life, you know? And how many of you have ever gotten pumped up by music? Also, on the other hand, I remember being in high school at PG High when, when we were ready to run in as a basketball team, it was Iron Man by Black Sabbath, you know, we were, we were getting pumped up, you know, every time I, it comes on the radio, or I hear, radio, I don't listen to the radio, but anytime it comes on, I still get pumped up, I still get that feeling. You know, music can do something to you, and these guys knew that. So they say, hey, let us find a musician, when he plays the harp, it will bring calmness into your soul. Now probably part of the reason that they suggested this is because this was actually part of Saul's own testimony. You see, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, it tells us that when Saul was anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel, when Saul was anointed, Samuel told him, you know, someday, or after you leave this city, a group of prophets are going to meet you on the road. They're going to have instruments they're going to be playing their instruments. And as they play music, they are going to prophesy over you. And the Spirit is going to come upon you and turn you into another man and give you another heart. Isn't that cool that the Holy Spirit could actually do that? Turn us into another person and give to us another heart. And so maybe these servants were remembering that moment. Like, oh man, I remember Saul, he went out, the music played, and he was changed into something else. So rather than suggesting the spirit, though, they were simply suggesting the music. Saul says, okay, that sounds good. Find me a man who can play the lyre. Fortunately, though, there was one young man there, who one servant who had already had a suggestion kind of put together. He says, you, you don't need to look for anybody. I know of the man. I've seen the son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, a man named David. He's skillful in playing. He is prudent in speech. He is a man of valor and a man of war. He is handsome in appearance, and the Lord is with him. And so Saul says, send and get him. He will be my servant. And so they send for Jesse, and Jesse loads up a donkey with all these gifts for King Saul. And David comes in and is favored by God in Saul's presence, and he begins to play the harp for Saul whenever that tormenting spirit from the Lord comes upon his life. But I want you to think for a moment today about the description of this, young, this servant of King David. The first thing that I want us to focus on, because it's really this list of great qualities, this, these pillars in, Saul, in David's life, excuse me, I want you to see, first of all, number one, that David was 
met the requirement of being able to play the harp. That's the first thing. He was skillful in playing. Now, the thing I want you to see about this is, I mean, for one, obviously we understand. If, if anybody has skill in playing an instrument, it's, it says a little bit about them, right? I mean, for one, if, if you're a skilled musician, it says that more than likely you have some kind of ability to be enduring and patient with things in life. Because anybody who sits down at an instrument for the very, very first time, what you understand is that you, ju- you, you do not sit down and automatically have the ability to play that instrument. You know, in my house, we have a piano that I do not know how to play. And I'm fairly certain that there will never be a moment in my life where I know how to play that piano. Because I understand if I'm going to try to learn how to play that instrument, there's going to be a whole lot of commitment that's involved. I'm going to have to block out portions of my day. I'm going to have to work hard at that. I'm going to have to get a teacher or an instructor. And I'm going to have to practice, practice, practice. And I got enough in my life that I got to practice, practice, practice. I got enough in my life that I already have to work so hard at and be disciplined with day in, day out. So I don't think I'm going to be learning the piano anytime soon. But, you know, I'm trying to encourage my daughters. Like, hey, you're taking lessons. It's time for you to practice. It's time for you to learn. You've got to sit down. So that might tell us a little bit about David, that he was a man who knew of endurance, who knew how to be patient. But the thing I want to point out to you is a different side to all of that. David was a musical man. David was a poetic man. That part of humanity, David was sensitive to. And here's the reason why I'm making a big deal about that. Saul was driven to music, but David used music to drive him to God. That's what it was. For him, it wasn't merely harp playing, it was worship to the Lord. At the end of David's life, when he gave an editorial note about himself, and he kind of described himself, this is like his way of saying, this is what I want on my tombstone. Think about yourself. If you were David, what would you want on your tombstone? You know, killed Goliath as a teenager. You know, led Israel to expand their nation you know, fought incredible wars and was always victorious. What might you put on your tombstone? But David said this of himself in his last days. He said, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. You see, for him, the thing that was most beautiful, the thing that was most powerful, the thing that for him was sort of the key that unlocked everything else in his life, unlocked the victory over Goliath, unlocked the victory over the surrounding nations, caused him to ascend into prominence in Israel was the fact that he was personally a worshiper of God. He was a songwriter for God, a a psalmist for God, a poet before God. And what he had done is he had allowed that sensitive, musical, beautiful part of life to become his own. In other words, when life did what life does, David sang and David worshiped before the Lord. And so the first thing that I want you to see about David here this morning, I built all this up to simply say this, the first thing that this man had going on in his heart is that he had a Godward reflex. He had a Godward reflex. 
You see, for him, out there in the wilderness, taking care of his father's sheep, rejected by Jesse, as he was singing and as as he was worshiping, he'd see the stars and he would respond reflexively with worship. He would feel the disappointment that had come from a father who had denied him, denied that he was even his son, and he responded with worship. He would look at the sheep cruising around and he would respond with worship. God is my shepherd. I shall not want. He would see creation and he would respond with worship. He would go through the conflicts of life and persecution and he would respond with worship over and over and over again. What we'll see David do is reflex in life toward God. He'll go to the Lord. He'll worship the Lord. And so when this man says he's skillful in playing, he's hinting at something that is so much deeper than just having the skill to play the harp. He's hinting at a man whose heart is Godward. Jesus had this same thing happening in his life. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all present Jesus in different facets of the life of Jesus. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all had, it seems, a desire to communicate a specific aspect of who Jesus was. Matthew likes to communicate of Jesus as the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Mark likes to communicate of Jesus as the servant of all. John likes to communicate Jesus as God the Son, as deity. But Luke, when Luke records Jesus' life, it seems that what he has in mind is that Jesus is the perfect human being. Jesus is the perfect uh, man, the, the perfect embodiment of what it is to be a perfect human. And the reason why I mention that is because in Luke's gospel, more than in any other of the gospels, Jesus is presented as a man of prayer. He's presented as a figure who, as Luke says it in Luke chapter 5, often withdrew in the wilderness to pray. In other words, his reflex that he had cultivated in his humanity was to turn his heart to his Father in heaven. He had said there, when tempted in the wilderness, I've read it said, or it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, I have to turn not to my hunger and not to food, but I have to turn to my Father in heaven. Now, I hope you see in this text that Saul had people in his life that were not encouraging him to do that. That what what, what Saul had in his life were, I hope, people that are not in your life. He had people who, when he was going through despair, when he was going through torment, they said to him, turn to music. Or these might be people who, in our modern time, might say to you, turn to substance. Or turn to entertainment. Or all all you really need, what you need is, is the comfort of another human being for one evening. That's all you really need to get through this pain in your life. That's what, that's what they directed Saul towards. But, but David was a man who went further. And with my pains, I'm going to go to God. With my hurts, I'm going to run to the Lord. And so my hope and prayer for us is that we would be able to cultivate, like David, this Godward reflex. You know, you've you've got to, first of all, 
have some kind of habit and some kind of system in your life to get that reflex going on. I mean, the reality is when we wake up in the morning, uh, all kinds of things are calling. Social media is calling. Email is calling. Uh, the news is calling. So many things are calling. You've got to uh, set some kind of boundaries and habits to be able to drive forward. For me, my brain is such a, it is like, I, I don't even know if this is the right word for it, but it is distractible. I mean, it is, anybody feel me right now? Am I by myself? I'm the only one. It's just me, okay? Distractible. It's just distractible. So when I wake up in the morning, it is starting to go through the process of being distracted. And for me, that's a time in my life, the morning time, where I've made the decision. I want that to be God's time. I want to seek the Lord. I want to spend time with Him and in His presence. But my mind wants to be distracted. So not everybody needs to do this. Some people have an iron will, but I've got various pieces of software that when I wake up in the morning on my computer, on my phone, every device I've got, the internet is killed. I, I use that software so that when I'm up in the morning, the temptation decreases. I can't even be distracted in that kind of way because, man, I, I, I just, I don't have the option. So you've got to start that kind of rhythm in your life, but you also need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you because the Spirit is the one who causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, Romans chapter 8. And so the Spirit inside of us, He wants to enable you more and more to have that Godward reflex. But I think also it's good for us to model this and be in communities where we're around others who have that Godward reflex. I know sometimes people get the wrong idea about pastors. And I know sometimes people get the wrong idea about me. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea about me. I don't want you to think that from Monday through Sunday, all seven days a week, I just walk around praying about everything. I don't want you to get that idea. I don't want you to get the idea that when I'm at Costco and I'm trying to pick, figure out like what eggs to buy and I'm trying to discern the mystery of like grass-fed or free-range and I'm trying to like go through that whole thing. I don't want you to get the idea that I'm like, Lord, right now what I need is discernment. Please speak to my heart. I'm kind of looking at the price and I'm like, I think that's my decision, you know? So I don't want you to get that idea. In fact, the other day I, I was with a friend of mine and we were out, we were on a run. We spent a lot of time together, you know, just over the years. We've spent a lot of times out on the trail, just kind of hanging out together. I'm very comfortable with him. He's comfortable with me. And he was talking to me about something that he's going through. And it was kind of one of those things. It's like, it was kind of like a borderline, should we pray about that or not kind of thing. I don't know if you know what I mean, but I, I guess maybe to like describe it, like when somebody tells you like, I just was diagnosed with cancer, it's like, that is totally in the like prayer category like let's pray about that let's pray for that you know and you feel like totally free to do that but this was like in one of those like gray area like i don't know if it's like big enough of a deal to say like can i pray for you you know like i think we should pray you know and he's my friend and so we're bros you know i'm like i don't want you to think i'm getting all pastor on you or something you know so i was like going through this debate in my mind as we got off the trail we're getting done he's about to leave i'm about to leave i'm like i don't know should we pray should i suggest it i'm like this is stupid yeah we should pray and so I was like, hey, man, can I pray for you, you know, about, about that thing? You know, and he's like, yeah, sure. You know, so we prayed for a little bit. Man, I hope that we can increase in cultivating community that has that Godward reflex within it. All right, so that's what David had. His, his heart was Godward. He responded to life toward the Lord. 
Number two, notice how the man describes David next. I'm going to put two of the phrases together. He calls him a man of valor, a man of war. A man of valor and a man of war. Now, as you're looking at your Bible, you've probably noticed that chapter 17 is where David is going to defeat Goliath. So here, before he even goes out into the battlefield against Goliath, he's already known by the servants, some of the servants at least, of Saul as a man of valor and a man of war, a man who is courageous and a man who is willing to fight. So how is that so? Well, one thing that we're going to learn is that David had to courageously fight in defending his father's sheep. And next week we'll see it when he's presented before Saul. They're like, hey, we got this young guy. He's saying that the Lord could defeat Goliath through him. And so Saul has an interview with David and he says, you know, what makes you think that you could go out and defeat Goliath? And I love what David says to him. He says, I used to keep my father's sheep. And when I did that, and when he says it that way, what you have to realize is that he had just left his father's sheep like five minutes ago. But in his mind, he's like, I'm retired now. (laughs) And he says, I used to keep my father's sheep. And when I did so, there was a time where a lion came out. And I rose up and I struck the lion. And there was a time when a bear came out and tried to take my father's sheep. And I rose up and I struck the bear. And this Philistine will just be be just like the lion. This Philistine will be just like the bear. And so you imagine that moment in David's life. That moment as a courageous fighter. When there was that moment, because if you're going to do anything for the Lord, if you're going to fight for anything that God places into your life, if you're going to be a courageous fighter and men and women alike need to have this in their heart, if you're going to have this, there's going to be that moment where you have to stand up and move forward when it is insane to do so. When you're going to have to run towards a lion, a bear, or some obstacle, some problem that you know without God's help, I'm going to die doing this. But in that moment, The Spirit came upon David and he stood up and it was like, I'm sure his mind said, what are you doing right now? As his feet propelled him toward the lion and toward the bear. So he defeated the lion and the bear, but he probably also had fought quite often against Philistine raiders who had come uh, up against Bethlehem because that was the season that Israel was in at the time, picking off people on the outskirts and crops on the outskirts and flocks on the outskirts of Israelite settlements. So he's probably accustomed to fighting against the Philistines already. But also, remember this, David was the youngest of eight brothers. So dude knew how to fight. (laughs) I mean, when you have seven older brothers, you have to fight just to live, just to get a little meal, just to get some food, you know, at your father's table. So David, he knew how to fight. He was already a man of valor, already a man of war. And the ability to boldly run into battle, to courageously fight, is a Christ-like attribute. Because Jesus, he ran into this battle. He ran into this fight. His face was set like flint to go to the cross. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, he said, That Jesus did not count his equality with the Father, with God, as a thing to be grasped, but he let go of the privileges of his deity to become one of us. 
And not just to become one of us, but to die. And not just to die, but to die upon the cross. An embarrassing death, a brutal death. And when Paul said that to the Philippian church, he wasn't just giving us theology. He had said, right before he said that, he said, so let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That same war time mentality that says I'm going to courageously run into the fight like Jesus did is ours in Jesus. We can adopt that into our own hearts and into our own minds. You see, the Lord wants to build up your strength so that you can become a fighter. How many of you would say amen to the concept that it takes a courageous fight in this modern day to hold fast to your integrity, your purity, your consecration as a believer. It takes a fight. If, if, you're, not, if you're not a person of valor, a person willing to fight, it's going to be so hard for you to hold fast to your integrity. You know, at the end of our uh, intro to Calvary class that we hold, you know, a few times a year where people who are thinking about making this part of their church family, you know, they come and they hear us talk about what the church is like and our vision and our mission. And we're, I'm really careful during that whole time. It's no sales pitch to me because I, I know people need to pray about it. I know they need to think about it. And every new person is another, air, another responsibility, and so I want to be very honest about what we're about, what we're like. And at the end of it, as we close it out, we say, so if the Lord is calling you to be here, we don't have a formal membership, but if, if you are feeling that this is the place that the Lord wants you to be, then make yourself a member of this church. And here are four ways to do so. And we just tell them, we say, keep committing to being here on Sundays. Pick a service, 9, 11, 6 o'clock, and make sure that you get to the house to worship the Lord together in community with other believers. Secondly, we said you can also come to a point where you make a decision to engage with Christian community. We've done that in the form of life groups. They meet during, during two seasons, 12 weeks at a time. It's 24 nights out of the entire year, 24 nights out of a 365-day calendar out of the entire year. Commit to one. And then thirdly, we say, and you can also come to the place if the Lord leads you to find, begin financially investing in this particular body of believers. And then lastly, if you come to that season in your life and you're healthy enough to be able to do so both physically and spiritually, begin serving in some aspect of this corporate body of believers, whether it's on Sunday or some other aspect of ministry that God has opened up a door for us in this church. And, and even just those basics, it takes a courageous wartime fight to just commit for the, to those. Because I guarantee you, the whole way of the world system is going to look at your schedule and make Sunday morning or Sunday night feel like an impossible thing to commit to. You're going to get two weeks into life group and it's going to feel to you like, man, I have gone two weeks in a row. I know what I deserve, two weeks off. And you're not going to be able to look at 24 nights and say, it's only 24 nights. I can commit to that as much as is reasonable and possible. I can commit to that group of believers. I need to build that relationship, and those relationships take time. But it's going to take a war. There's going to be a war against your budget. There's going to be a war against your energy and space and time with serving. It takes a fight to do the things the Lord has asked us to do. But it also 
takes courage beyond just those things for the unique things, not just the big things that all believers do in some way, shape, or form, but the unique things that God has called you to. A story comes into my mind from the life of Jackie Robinson, who broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. And the, the, I'm very proud that, the, that it was the Dodgers that uh, signed him uh, because I'm a Dodger fan. And uh, they were the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time, and the general manager who signed him, his name was Branch Rickey. He was a devout Christian man. He was a Methodist. And Branch Rickey had for almost four decades wanted in one shape or, or form or another to see baseball become integrated. And that, that division had broken his heart. And he, he came to a place where he knew it's time. You know, we, we've got to do this. And he wanted to be involved in it. And so he was praying for not just a talented African-American baseball player, not just a talented black man as a baseball player, but he wanted someone who was a, a believer or who had Christian, a Christian foundation. Because he knew that what this man was going to be up against was going to be so massive. And there's this famous meeting that takes place or that took place between Jackie and Branch Rickey where Branch Rickey challenged him. He said, are you the man that can do this thing? I, I believe that you're talented enough for it as a baseball player, but, but the reality is you are going to be facing so much hostility, so much rejection, so many racial slurs, so much you know, every town you go to, you're going to have a hard time getting a hotel room. It's going to be very difficult. And the way you respond is going to be the thing that makes this victorious. And he said to him, he said, we cannot fight our way through this. We've got no army. There's virtually nobody on our side. No owners, no umpires, very few newspapermen. Many fans will be hostile. We can only win if we can convince the world that I'm doing this because you're a great ball player and a fine gentleman. And what Jackie Robinson had to embrace was the word of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5. For a few years, he had to simply turn the other cheek. He had to put up with shameful things. And that was his way of courageously fighting through something so that he could bring an entire race. And then after that, the world baseball opened up to the Latino world as well. And to break open that barrier. But it took courage. It took a man of valor. It took a fight. And there will be things that the Lord places in front of you that you're going to have to fight for. You're going to have to have that Christian courage for. Allow the Holy Spirit to bring that into your life. Now I know I've talked much about these first two, so let me talk more briefly about number three and four, and then I'll get out of your hair and we can go home. Number three, notice how the man calls David prudent in speech. Did you see that? He's prudent in speech. In other words, he's discerning and thoughtful when he speaks. Now, we haven't even read David speak yet. We'll see him speak next week. But over and over again through his whole life, whenever he speaks, you're just kind of floored. Even today. I bet there were plenty of you this morning. I know I was. You read something that David spoke. You maybe started your day with a psalm. And you read that and you just said, that's just beautiful, communicates my heart. It's speaking to me as he's speaking to God. He was prudent in speech. But I want you to remember that this guy is saying this about teenage David. Young David. 
Already at this point, when he speaks, there's something clear about it. There's something beautiful about it. There's something calculated about it, discerning, thoughtful about it. The reason that David was able to speak prudently with discernment and clarity wasn't just because he was eloquent, wasn't just because he was a good speaker, but it's because he had things like this in his life. Listen to this. Psalm 62, verse 1. For God alone, David said, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. David had come to a place in his life where he would silently wait upon the Lord. And when you become a person who can be quiet before God, when you speak, it's better. It's better than it was before you knew how to be silent before God. I have this thing on my phone that in the, uh, the app that I use to send text messages, I can program a little gap of time. It can be one second, it could be up to 10 seconds, but I can program this little gap of time from the moment that I hit the send button to the moment that it actually sends. And it's been a God saver a few times, you know, because I'll, be, I'll hit the send button and then as I'm watching, looking at it there on the screen and as this bar is like counting down, I'm looking at it and I think, oh man, that was a bad autocorrect. That's not what I meant at all. You know, you hit the X button, it stops and I go back, rework it a little bit and then boom, send it. There have been definitely some times where I've hit the send button and as it's counting down, I'm looking at that thing and I'm like, oh man, the tone is all wrong. You know, I'm, I'm upset or there's some kind of thing that could be taken the wrong way. Hit the X button, rework it. Be nice, you know, kind of thing. And so I have that kind of dialed in. Wouldn't it be nice if you could live your whole life five seconds ahead of everything else. You know, where like you say something and everybody else is five minutes behind you and you're like, now it came out wrong. X, and you go back and you get to say it again. Wouldn't that be beautiful? I'm sure there's moments in your life that you look back on and you're like, man, I'm still, pay- I'm still paying for that. I'm still paying for that thing that I said yes to. I'm still paying for that thing that I committed to. If I just had a little gap. You know what? The Holy Spirit of God, as you learn to seek Him and learn to be silent before Him and learn to walk with Him throughout the entirety of your day, He can bless you with that kind of reality. Not where you're actually living five seconds ahead of everyone else, but where there's a thoughtfulness, where you pause, where you begin to say, I I don't think this is going to sound right. Or if it didn't sound right, you know, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me for the way I've just spoken? That's, that's not what I wanted to say. That's not what I wanted to be. And so David had this prudent speech that was just beautiful that God can give. James said in James 1, verse 19 and 20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Some of you have been trying to produce something in someone's life, and you've been trying to produce it through words of anger. And I would encourage you, you will get further with that person with words of encouragement than you will with giving them a tongue lashing. It's so often that if we we just could speak prudently, God would use us more effectively. All right, now finally and lastly, number four, David was a man of good presence. 
In other words, he was attractive. All right, now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, look, there's nothing I could do about that. (laughs) All right, I am what I am. I got what I got. You know, my parents gave me their genes. They gave me their DNA. I got what I got. I am what I am. What do you mean, like, he was attractive? What do you mean he was handsome? And, And David was externally physically handsome. It was, it was dissimilar to Saul, who was very tall, or Eliab, who was very tall. He was smaller and all of that, but there was something physically attractive to David. But his attractiveness went beyond what he was externally. The name David actually means beloved. And every person in David's life, so many people at least in David's life, they loved David. There was something about him that was attractive to them, not just physically, but it was like a spiritual magnetism about this man. Uh, Saul, as we just read in this story, he began to be drawn to David. He favored David. This this guy became his armor bearer. He's playing music for him, and and he favors David. Later on, after David defeats Goliath, the women in Israel are going to sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. He became beautiful to the women in Israel. Jonathan, Saul's son, would see David out there in the battle and his heart was knit to David as they became the best of friends together. And as Saul submitted his position as the prince of Israel to David, and Saul's own daughter, a young woman named Michael, she saw David and fell in love with him. Over and over again, people were drawn to David. David's nephews, The sons of Zariah, who were probably more like his brothers because he was the youngest of all the brothers. His nephews were probably right around his age. His nephews fell in love with him and served him in battle. And one day, when he was driven from Saul's presence and staying in the cave of Adullam, those who were distressed and indebted and disappointed with Saul's reign, they were drawn to David. They saw him as beautiful. And in saying all of that, in describing the handsomeness or the attractiveness of David, what we should be seeing is the attractiveness, or what we should be remembering is the beautiful attractiveness of Jesus Christ. Amen? There was a moment where Jesus, the son of David, the root of David, the offshoot of David, there was a moment where he came to the Galilee out of the wilderness temptations. And he began to speak. And he began to work miracles, and they flocked to him because they just wanted to be around him. There was something beautiful about the way that he spoke, something beautiful about the way that he worked amongst them. And they loved him. They were drawn to him. But listen, that same magnetism of Christ should be, and this is why I've made it the last pillar that we'll talk about today, It should be something that we desire in our own lives as well. Because if Christ is beautiful and attractive, and the Spirit of Christ now resides within us, we should long to become more beautiful, more magnetic, more attractive as time goes on in our walk with the Lord. We should have this thing happening more and more in our lives where the people around us are drawn to us. Think of what Jesus said in John chapter 15. He said, as I abide in you and you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. And I said this to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. 
You ever met just the most joy-filled person? Person filled with the joy of Jesus? It's just incredible. It's just beautiful. In a, in a salty, bitter world, it's refreshing. Have you ever read the description of Paul of what love is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Love being patient and kind and gentle and long-suffering and believing all things and hoping all things. You ever been around someone like that? Man, when you are, it's just like, I want you to be my friend. I want to know you. I want to, I want to be around you. That joy, that love, it's powerful. We should want this kind of pillar to be placed more firmly in our hearts, more firmly within our lives. And so David, man, this guy had it going on. He just loved the Lord, and as he loved the Lord, these things were unleashed in his heart, unleashed within his life. And we're going to be able to see him living these things out for four decades as we follow along his life here in First and Second Samuel. But what will the pillars of your heart be? You know, what will those things be that define who you are? And my prayer for you is that it would all begin with being that person who has that Godward reflex toward the Lord. So Father, we pray and ask that you would do that very thing within our hearts, that you would make us, Lord, more and more into a people, Lord, who are just drawn to you. Lord, who craft and cultivate as the years go by that response, Lord, towards you. Let it not be, Lord, to, to a drug, to a substance. Let it not be, Lord, even to a person or to an event or just to innocuous entertainment, Lord. Let it be, Lord, that the, the, the thing that satisfies our soul and heart is that we turn to you. In the sorrows of life, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to have that reflex before you, before our God. So, Lord, we love you. We pray that you would produce this in us because we know, Lord, that only you can. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.